What's up, Internet Fitness family? This is the Fitness Reform Podcast. Welcome back. My guest today is Alex Sulkin. He is a trainer, an author, an expert in kettlebell and calisthenics, and generally making us all really much stronger. Otherwise known as the Hebrew Hammer, that's his moniker. I like that a lot. Tells you a lot about who I'm talking to. Alex, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, man. So, so your biography was interesting and humorous. Um, and humorous in a good way. I kind of liked the way you kind of like laid out a lot of what s sounds like actually humiliating <laughs> kind of circumstances and kind of put like a, a funny twist on it. So, mm. so to, we'll just start there. There. What was growing up for you like? Wow, that's uh. It's a very good question because I always liked being physically active, but I was never good at it. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, how you see people who go on like, you know, America's got, well, maybe not America's got talent, but let's say like, uh, um, what was that other show with, uh, uh, Simon Cowell where people would go up and sing and they sucked and uh, then he did uh, just... uh, American Idol, American, American Idol. Idol. That's right. American Idol. So I was kind of like. For me, it was like my early life was like American Idol, but for all things like movement and fitness, because it's like, you know, the people who go on American Idol and get just obliterated and eviscerated by the judges, uh, mm -hmm. they like singing. They're just not any good at it. And so for me, it was like that was what it was like for fitness and exercise and movement and stuff like that. Uh, I enjoyed it. I was just really not very good at it. So, you know, I didn't get picked last for teams on like team sports and, you know, elementary, middle and high school, but it was like second to last third to last i was i was like circling the drain basically and i didn't like these activities in any mm -hmm. case you know i really liked more kind of like solo activities for instance like i would like to explore the creek behind my parents house or you know run around outside ride bikes you know things like that uh, but i always wanted to uh tap into what i could see some of these other kids were able to do very easily where they just had this like effortless athleticism and like physical prowess and for me it just it just wasn't there and, uh, you know, when you're a kid, all you know is what you know. So it, I figured, okay, some people are born with it and just some people aren't. So I guess that's just the way that it is. And, uh, you know, as time went on, I realized that you can learn things and you can get better at stuff and, and so on and so forth. And I was very fortunate in my very late teenage years to find a school that taught Muay Thai, which was, uh, my, I would say, my first foray into what we might call like physical culture. And it was, of all things, so I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is not known for being this cosmopolitan, you know, like, uh, place with a bunch of, like, famous or accomplished people. There are, obviously. There's Warren Buffett, but that's the first and only person most people bring up for a reason. Uh, but as it turns out, there's a guy <laughs> who is a two-time world kickboxing champion, world kickboxing champion, who uh, had also, he, I think he came in second at the Sabaki Open in Japan, which is like a bare knuckle karate tournament. And it was like a big deal, like in the 90s. Wow. And he lives in Omaha and he, he, has, he has a school in Omaha. His name's Mick Doyle. And um, I figured it was a chain of gyms. A friend of mine and I decided to check it out. And he was actually behind the counter. Like, I, I still remember this. This was probably like, I don't know, early 2006, something like that. So he gave us a tour of his gym and we were like, well, we got to try it out. So we did a, a we did a class, and it was like the hardest I had ever worked out ever. And um, mm -hmm. it literally took a week to recover. And think about that. Like, if you're a teenager, 
and you do a workout so hard it takes a week to recover like you've been you've been worked out very very hard or you're in very poor shape which is also i suppose equally possible option but we were hooked we were like we got to do this and so we signed mm -hmm. up and uh from there you know i kind of started to see like okay you know even though i'm not very good at this i'm getting a little bit better each time that i show up i'm learning more and more and so i got started uh getting interested in stuff like lifting weights and you know i did some basic bodybuilding type of routines and then eventually i was introduced to the kettlebell and uh, from there my life was just never the same and you actually um well you've not only met but you have seems like a pretty close association with the the man the kettlebell man himself uh pavel uh Sutzlin, um who you know I, I don't know how how really common his name is. A lot of people listening right now probably have no clue who he is, but Pavel is the authority on kettlebells. You know, Pavel, uh, he grew up in the Soviet Union. He defected. He brought a lot of their workouts for Soviet soldiers over here, kettlebells. And so the, uh, you know, he... He is he is the one who pretty much made it part of the American physical cultural landscape. Uh, for those of you who don't know, but what? So I'm kind of interested. I'm kind of interested in him. I've had a kind of a fleet um, passing interest in him over over the over the years since I've come to realize who he was. So when did you actually meet him? I met him at my kettlebell certification course, or the one that I went through uh, with his previous uh, kettlebell certification course. And actually, it was 13 years ago this month, if you can believe that. I was, uh, I was 24 years old and, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, super excited to be at this event. And there was, uh, it was a three-day thing. So it was like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday was the course itself. And I, technically, the first time I saw him was uh, on the Thursday before because there was like a meet and greet. So it's like you get to meet the... Uh, the instructors who are leading the different teams because they're they're quite big usually when they when they put these things on and so they may have so there will be like a chief instructor at any given certification and then there are like uh, other instructors underneath like you know anywhere from team leader to senior to master which is kind of the pecking order there and um, I saw him walk out of the restaurant with uh, his publisher and I was the only time in my life I've been like so like starstruck I couldn't speak I couldn't even think because it's not like he was talking to the guy that were just kind of both walking together. So I could have gone up and introduced myself, but I was just so amazed I, I couldn't. So I didn't meet him until the next day, the actual day of the certification. Um, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it would have been, it was October, I don't know, maybe 15th, not that I'm counting, of uh, 2010. And uh, I've, I've had the <laughs> opportunity to, to uh, be in touch with him at other events along the way. You know, it's not like we email back and forth very regularly, like periodically, like, you know, I'll send him an email and he'll write back. But but generally, um, I would say it would be close, it would be more accurate to say, like, we know each other as opposed to like, you know, we're we're like tight buds because he does have people that he's he's in like mm -hmm. regular contact with. I would say I'm in periodic contact with. Right. Him, but but yeah, we do know each other. It was a great experience meeting him. They say don't meet your heroes because they're only going to disappoint you. But Pavel yeah. is an exception because he was awesome. Uh, every time I meet him, he's like a perfect gentleman, uh, uh, great to chat with, great to learn from. And um, I, it's been a very long time since I've gone to a workshop that he has, he has been putting on. But uh, I'm hoping to go to one sometime in the near future because he started teaching at uh, these new 
these new events that he started putting on, like strong endurance, which is using strength training essentially, or the principles of it to improve your endurance and your power endurance and mm-hmm. things like that. So long answer to a very short question, but, uh, but there you have it, there you be. Yeah, he's always, I mean, I've seen not many interviews with him, but um, but the ones I have seen is like, he always just kind of, it always dumbstrucks me how like stripped down and very kind of, like you said, gentlemanly and very kind of, very soft-spoken too. Like he, you know, you kind of expect this brusque, you know, former Soviet military type, but no, he's very, you know, he's almost, he's almost understated, you know, yeah. like, like he doesn't, like he doesn't want the spotlight on him, but you know, but you know, like we mentioned Joe Rogan earlier before broadcast and he's been on Rogan. So he is a big deal. If you don't get on Rogan, if you're not somebody, you know, and the thing, the thing about that too, is that, um, I, I don't know this for a fact. This is just speculation. I I think it probably took some like mm-hmm. gentle prodding and convincing from some of his um his inner circle uh to go on Rogan because you're right, Pavel really doesn't like the spotlight. Which to me is crazy because I I think he's if anybody should love the spotlight, it should be the guy who's positively transformed the fitness landscape in the best possible way over the last twenty plus years. Mm-hmm. But he is very soft spoken, very um, very not vain, like a very, he's, what you see is what you get basically. So like, if you see him on an interview, he's not, you know, putting himself on or anything like that. That's just how he is in, in real life. And, uh, mm-hmm. he, I actually invited him to come onto my podcast once and he, he politely declined. He says, you know, generally I just don't do podcasts, but I appreciate the, the offer. Um, and this was shortly after he'd gone on Rogan. So I knew it was like a shot in, you know, a shot in the dark. It's like, there's just probably no way he's going to go but he was very nice right. about it but yeah he he's a super humble guy and it's not it's not for show he he genuinely just sees himself as just a regular guy this is what he's interested in and then there are other people who are interested so he teaches them um but yeah couldn't be a nicer mm-hmm. dude uh i've got nothing but nice things to say about him love all of his work he's uh he's the real deal so you're uh you are certified through this uh, this organization. It's called Strong First, right? Is mm-hmm. like that is that's Pavel's organization. Is that correct? I have that right. You right? Yep, exactly. Okay, so you have all right. So you have certification through Strong First, but you're also part of this uh, called Original Strength. Is that the same thing, or is that completely separate? Very complementary, different but complementary. It's like I would say complementary in in that like wine and steak complement each other. You know. Um, meaning you can okay. have one or you can have the other, but if you have them both, you know, you got a, you got a really nice meal. And uh, so strong first is basically, uh, Pavel's vision of strength training for people that is very stripped down, very principles based and, uh, less focused mm-hmm. on, you know, gizmos and gadgets and really more focused on, as he likes to call it, low tech, high concept, meaning like the principles and the theories and the practices behind them are all the sort of a thing that are. Uh, very sophisticated, but the the material that they use to achieve it is very uh, very foundational. So free weights and body weight. If you wanted to break it down to like the the, the smallest possible parts, so let's say kettlebells, barbells, and then uh, body weight exercises. Original strength. What's great about that is that it is focused specifically on the movement patterns that basically make us up as as humans. So when you're a baby. You go through a certain automatic process whereby you start collecting these uh, movement patterns that you go through 
that sort of set the foundation for all the more advanced stuff that we end up doing. So a good example would be, you know, when you're really, really newborn, it's just, you know, maybe breathing and moving your head around. But eventually the strength and control that you get from moving your head around, because those muscles in your neck and the movements of your head are very strongly correlated to the uh, activation of the muscles in the upper back, the upper body in general, the midsection, you start to be able to move around so you can start to roll. And eventually you can get on all fours and you can kind of rock back and forth. That translates itself into crawling, which is the foundation for the gait pattern or the walking pattern. And then from there, you can start working on, you know, walking, running, and then you can do some of these more advanced things like throwing and jumping and, and things of that nature. And so the concept behind it is that by restoring or resetting these movement patterns, you can start to reset and restore your base for movement so that you can improve your athletic performance, you can improve your strength training, your fitness. And then, you know, another thing that's very important for a lot of people is just improve their resilience, you know, so that you, you're not, mm -hmm. let's say, if you think about your car, if your car has got, you know, a part that's gone bad or something that's missing, you're going to have a lot more wear and tear on it. And so the human body is, is somewhat similar in that, uh, you could end up with compensations in your movement that cause you aches, stiffness, discomfort, uh, negatively impact how you perform physically, uh, even mentally. You know, they can be very, very distracting. And mm -hmm. so uh, right. original strength basically helps you to restore the, the base of movement so that you can accomplish anything else that you want. So the two go together like, like again, like we'll say steak and wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I um so I did download your uh free guide, your nine minute free guide. Nice. And I did I looked through it. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. Um because you, you you did notice like or you did point out like certain movements like, you know, the crawling movement, which I I have done and I do do, you know, and the crawling, the dead bug, and the finally the carrying. Um it's in, it it was uh one, it made sense because especially now, since you've ex explained it, how one just kind of bleeds into another and how it just kind of contributes uh, to this idea of original strength. Uh, but I never until then really thought of, I thought it was like I, I really more kind of mobility and kind of flexibility purposes. That's really the only reason why I ever did those ideas or did those movements. I never thought of it in terms of like a foundation for strength or mm -hmm. You know, you know, not not in a real way. You know, you you know, I kind of had the you know, you want a foundation of strength. You got to start to lift them weights. Or you got to start to, you know, whatever, lift them heavy rocks, whatever it is you're doing. Um, but it's kind of cool how you kind of like condensed all of that into these very simple, very simply explained movements and a very uh, time efficient sort of way. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it because that is something that I, I, I would say like a misconception about original strength that I, I, I try to dispel. It is, of course, very good for improving your mobility because when you move better, then you know you can move better. But then a lot of people think, okay, I'll use it as a warm up, mm -hmm. and then you know I'll be I'll be good to go. But if you can learn how to take these right. foundational movements and then turn them into the sort of a thing that you can use to get a lot stronger. One of the one of the terms a lot of people use when they tell me about doing it is that they feel more put together or they feel like better better connected. Then you start to find that the foundational weightlifting movements, whether it's you know deadlifting or squatting or presses of all sorts of different variations, they start to become a lot easier because these are called compound movements for a reason. You know the whole body is supposed mm -hmm. to work together to achieve them, and if the whole body works together better, 
it's a lot easier to achieve them. So all of a sudden, you know, your squats, you can go deeper, perhaps. Maybe you feel a little bit like it's a little bit more effortless when you stand up uh, or even just getting into place. Similar with, you know, presses of all sorts of uh, all different varieties. So uh, pulling naturally uh, comes into play as well. So, yeah, the I view it as something that it goes hand in hand with it. So rather than looking at it as like this is just something that you maybe bookend your training with. So you put it at the beginning and then maybe put a little bit at the end just so you kind of maintain your mobility. If you can blend it so that it's actually working hand in hand with your strength training, many people find that they start to see results a lot faster. And, you know, they're not waking up the next day, you know, in sections where it's like, okay, I got to just slowly move over so that, you know, this aching body part doesn't doesn't zap me or, or whatever it may be. And uh, everything just feels a lot better. You feel a lot younger. And of course, you're crushing PRs left mm. and right. So who can complain about that? And did you uh, uh, come up with this concept? Like, did you just like, um, was this was this concept of your own making? Or was this kind of like, um, inspired by Guess, what am I trying to ask here? Is <laughs> like, I guess how, the question I'm asking is like, how how did you come to this concept of putting everything together in these very time efficient three minute intervals that only adds up to like nine minutes out of your day, you know, from where you started and from what you from what you learned? Yeah, that um, I will take credit for. First, I thought you were asking if uh, like if original strength was an idea of my own creation. I was going to say I wish because it's brilliant, you know. But I am of course right. following the marching orders of uh, Tim Anderson and and some of the other people who are responsible at the at the highest levels of the organization of original strength but no i would say i actually really owe the the lion's share of uh credit would go to my students and my clients because you know one of the things when you become a personal trainer what you start to realize is all the things that you are naturally gravitating toward as a trainer or as somebody who's who's decided to make that his or her career you're thinking like, oh, well, you know what? If people worked out for an hour every day and they did, you know, all the seven basic movement patterns and they, you know, had this collection of kettlebells and all this other stuff, they'd be in great shape. And so you start to realize, though, that for a lot of people, they're bought in, they're ambitious, they want to achieve something. But like with anything, it's the same thing if you wanted to learn a, a new instrument, it would be like, sure, you'd get better if you practice for an hour a day. But if you go from zero to 60 minutes, it's a really big leap and it's very difficult to, to stick with that. And so um, there's a, it's mm. not that it's physically impossible, but for a great many people, the psychological barriers that are put up with having to invest that kind of time in something, uh, it's, again, it's like jumping in the deep end when you've just learned how to dog paddle. You know, it's like, even if you can physically make it to the shallower end of the pool or, or you know, deal just fine with, with being in the water, it's that idea that, there's the scary depth to it that you don't want to have to, you don't want to have to traverse until you're ready. So um, over the last right. however many years, I've made it a point to show my students and clients how to get great results in very short periods of time. And so ultimately, what ends up happening, and there's a caveat to it, because ultimately, what ends up happening is that it becomes something where they are starting to see results in maybe only doing like you know five ten minutes of work in a day. And they think, well, if, if I'm getting these kind of results in five, ten minutes or whatever the, whatever the case may be, then what if I were to do like 15 minutes? You know? And so they naturally upgrade because they, they've gone a little ways and they can now see a little bit further. So they're not, they're not dealing with this idea of like, I'm just going to go indefinitely 
and uh, and just see how things work out. So the nine minute uh, element of it is that, of course, it's one minute less than 10. So again, psychologically, I don't think there's anything super special about nine minutes specifically, other than that, um, psychologically, it's a lot easier for people to commit to something that's that short of a period of time. And then again, when they see that they're getting excellent results um, and that they can also put it in with whatever other program that they're doing, and not only is it not interfering, it's actually enhancing it, then it's like they're instantly bought in and they want to keep going. And it's that consistency and not missing workouts and you know having excuses to succeed rather than excuses to skip their training. That's when they start to see some really, really great results. Right. And so then from there, it's a lot easier for them to uh, just take things to the next level by learning more advanced techniques, uh, training for a little bit longer, and so on and so forth. Was that the way um, you had to kind of get your uh, get your foot in the door in fitness here? I mean, you said that you got into you, you did a Muay Thai class, and that was and that was rough, and you had to step back from that for a week. Um, were you just naturally kind of gung ho? It's like, oh, this is it. This is the way. I'm going back as soon as I can. I'm yeah. I was naturally gung ho. Like for me, if there's something that I decide I'm going to do, I'm definitely going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have my own yeah. psychological barriers around those things, uh, meaning it's like there are times where all like, we'll put it this way. Um, I remember reading a book or reading about a book called The Warrior Diet. This was probably in 2008, mm-hmm. I want to say. And it, the, essentially, it was one of the one of the first books of uh, about fasting. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of others before it. But uh, the author of this book, Ori Hoffmeckler, uh, really uh, dived into the science behind it and all this other stuff. And Pavel was a big fan of it. And so I thought, okay, well, Pavel likes it. It's got to be pretty good. And um, I, I remember I would wake up every day eating like this sugary breakfast cereal. Like I should really do this warrior diet thing. And this went on for like months. Okay? And then eventually I was like, I'm just going to do it. And I just started one day. I'm like, I'm not going to eat the whole day until dinner. Then I'm going to eat dinner. And then eventually I decided I should actually read the book. And so then I, I was doing intermittent fasting for like 10 years. So I would say, yes, I have a tendency to be more gung-ho, but I've had to temper my own approach because mm-hmm. I realize I cannot just try to transfer that to other people because for some people that does work. And some people they're like, I'm ready. Let's do this. Most people, they, uh, they want to see, and this is perfectly understandable. They want to see like uh, a series of wins on their board, you know, like, and it could be something as simple as like, mm-hmm. I did this every day for a week or for two weeks. And then they look in the mirror and they're like, wow, you know, I, I kind of look a little different. Or they wake up in the morning, they're like, oh, my low back doesn't hurt anymore. Um, and so then they're bought in and then they want to they wanna notch up to the next level. So for me, yeah, I was very gung-ho and I had no problem jumping straight in. But I would definitely say that, um, I would say probably the, the in, if I want to think about how I applied it directly to my students, you know, whenever, when I was training people face-to-face, you know, I mostly do things online now, but when I was training people face-to-face, there was a time in 2015, um, so I was living in, in Israel, and I had uh, group classes that I would do at various different places, but there was one in a town called Efrat, which is very close to Jerusalem, which is where I lived, and uh, I, I was abroad eight times in, 2000, in 2015. And I had these you know, group classes where ladies would show up. It was a ladies' class in particular that would show up twice a week. And we would do a one-hour class because that's basically how fitness classes work. You know, it's like 45 minutes to an hour. And, uh, but it was, serious. it was mm-hmm. almost every single, it was like, like more than every other month. 
I was like, I got to go away for a week or two weeks or a month, you know. And finally, one of them said, you know, we really need you because when you're gone for this week or two weeks, we just don't have anybody running us through any any training. We just don't do anything. So I, I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to put together a WhatsApp group. It's a text messaging app. And uh, everybody owes me five minutes yeah. of movement every day. And it could be anything. It could be laying on the ground, just practicing some relaxed, deep breathing. It could be going on a walk. It could be doing, you know, original strength resets. It could be doing some push-ups on your countertop. It could be anything, but you owe me at least five minutes. Once you've done your five minutes, you've completed your commitment for the day. You don't owe me any other movement. All right? You can go more if you want. You could, you're, maybe your goal could be 10 or 15 minutes, but your commitment is always going to be five. And so we started doing that. And uh, out of the, I think there were maybe eight ladies in the group, none of them ever missed a day. And so I realized I was on to something because if they could do five minutes and never miss it, and, and as weeks went by, most of them were doing more like 10 or 15 minutes. And not because I told them to, but just because they realized that five minutes was relatively easy. Um, and they were seeing great results and all this other great stuff was happening. They were getting those wins on the board and uh, they realized, okay, you know what? This is something that like, I don't need to be in a class two times a week for. I mean, I still want to show up to the classes, but I can also do stuff on my own. And even if it's not for an hour, I can make some great gains. And, uh, you know, it was, it like took off from there. So I think that was my own aha moment was the need to take care of my students while I was, you know, teaching workshops and in Europe and Australia and in the U.S. and stuff like that. Um, I needed to take care of them. I needed to find a way to make it so that even when I was there, they were going to be able to accelerate the results, you know, the times that I was not training them. And I never looked back. And so I, I, I internalized not only for them, but also for myself, the value of just, you know, five minutes uh, or 10 minutes or whatever it may be for helping to really propel you forward. And uh, that was a big, uh, a big game changer for me. Yeah, something I've realized when in my own uh, experience in training people here is that, well, one, yeah, that the there are things that you tend to gravitate towards, and so you have kind of a built-in bias towards that. Um, and sometimes it works for people, sometimes it doesn't. But the need to be time efficient—that's really—that's really what has really, um, really recently, just recently, has really kind of struck me as something I should really put more of a priority on and something that's just paring things down to make it very simple and make it very doable and something that doesn't really overwhelm them. Uh, Because even with people who are with me, um, because now I'm getting to the point where I think like an hour is way too long. It, you know, it's, you know, even when I was doing an hour session, it was, I was kind of like finding ways of trying to fill in those final 15 minutes or something like that. I was like, well, I got about 40 minutes of, material here but they pay for an hour so yeah. i gotta give them an hour even though i think this is probably good where we're at here we've probably done plenty but i don't want people walking away feeling like they got cheated out of their time so yeah i i'm definitely with you on that right there i think uh if you can kind of make things more efficient in less time probably the better for everybody for you included since you're so busy Certainly. Yeah. And, you know, I think actually, in particular, when you're dealing with clients, you know, the fact is, is that everybody comes in with sort of preconceived notions about what fitness means and, you know, what it means to uh, to be on a program or on a diet or whatever the case may be. And but they are looking for leadership and they're looking for you to guide them. Now, Mm -hmm. caveat to that is sometimes people aren't people are looking for that, but more and more particularly, they want 
you to validate whatever their opinions are. That's a totally different story. But if you can tell people, look, I'm a fitness professional. I can tell you a couple of things right now. You know, if you come in and you train with me twice a week, these are going to be your more intense days. So we're going to spend more time working on X, Y, and Z. Uh, but you're going to get even better results if you're doing a small amount in between just on your own. And I'm going to, and I can show you how to do these things, you know, without needing the machines or, you know, these particular weights that we're using in here so that you can continue to accelerate what you're doing, but doesn't have to be your full-time job like it is mine. If you can set that expectation early so they understand like a little bit of, um, a little bit of work on their part on their own can help to accelerate the, what they're doing with you. You know, even if you're finding that, okay, you know, at 40 minutes, they've probably done about all they need to, uh, they're going to feel like they're getting a lot more out of their sessions because they're going to start to see that like, oh, you know, these first sessions, I was making some pretty good progress, you know, for the first couple of months, but now I'm making like really fast progress and I'm only doing five to 10 minutes of maybe just mobility work at home, you know, or mm -hmm. maybe, you know, like some hip thrusts on my couch or some push-ups on the floor or something like that. They're going to start to see all of a sudden that things are really starting to pick up speed. And then that builds that confidence within them to want to make every one of those classes, try to squeeze everything out out of those, you know, any, anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes that they've got with you uh, makes a, a huge difference in the long run. But the, some people are, they, they basically it needs to be made as simple for them as possible to achieve. So if the barrier is just five minutes a day of something simple, a lot easier for them to do than like, let's say 20 minutes a day. Uh, when you're not mm -hmm. with them, it can get to that eventually. But if they start with like five, it's easier to do it than not to do it in most cases. Yeah, I think a lot of us, because a lot of us who do teach in this space and we kind of live there, we get, we, like I said, we have this built in um, blindness that everyone must be like me. I want to do this all the time. So yeah. <laughs> if you're talking to me and you're working with me, you must be the same. We must be the same kind of person. And, you know, it only takes a few clients to realize, no, that's not really the case. You know, you might be a fitness nut, but, you know, this is just something that is alongside everything else that they've got going on in their lives. And, you know, you're talking about grown people with jobs and four kids. It's just, you know, you can't expect, you know, seven day, two hour sessions. It's just nor would I recommend that. It just seems wildly excessive. But um, yeah. so let's. So you did you like I mentioned earlier you did author two books here mm -hmm. you got uh, the No BS Kettlebell and Bodyweight Kickstart Guide and you have the mm -hmm. other one Tamers of the Lost Ark um, so I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, so talk to us about the No BS Kettlebell and Bodyweight Kickstart uh, what what was what's the origin story behind that you know for so long well okay when I got involved with kettlebell training in two thousand eight. One of the first things that I noticed was that, you know, I would read from Pavel's books or on the forums or stuff like that, that there were people who, in addition to their kettlebell training, they were doing one-arm push-ups or pistol squats, they're doing mm -hmm. pull-ups, you know, things like that. But there was, uh, there was really no, and then similarly, I would buy books about calisthenics training and it would be like, oh, in addition to his pull-ups and one-arm push-ups and pistols and whatever the case may be. So-and-so is also doing snatches, you know, on these days or, you know, kettlebell swings or, or whatever the case was. But there was never really any information on combining modalities. It was like, in fact, I even remember in The Naked Warrior, which is one of uh, Pavel's really, really great books on bodyweight training. He says, 
you know, unless you're, I think it was Andy Kapoor. He said, basically, like, unless you're like a pretty experienced coach, you don't need to worry about mixing modalities. Just pick one, stick with that for a while, and then move on to the next one. And I think there's some validity to it. I don't think he's he's wrong necessarily. But I think the audience is also very different because most, it's maybe different now, but back in those days, most of the people reading Pavel's books were people like you and me, people who were like fitness professionals or wannabe fitness professionals. I was not yet you know, certified at the time I started reading his material. But now there are a lot of people who just really love kettlebell training and really love calisthenics training that they're reading these books because it's a passion of theirs and it's an ambition of theirs to get good at these things. You, you know, you might say it's like a hobby in a sense, but it's a sort of a thing that they want to get good at and don't necessarily want to get paid for. But the difficulty is that, again, there's so little information on how to combine them. And my method is, I think, I would call it a th very much like a threefold approach. There's kettlebells, calisthenics, and natural human movement, which I would lump into that last category, like original strength, uh, as well as some other things, you know, like mm -hmm. hanging uh, and, and other things that I think people should be able to do that most people might not look at and think of as really like fitness, but it all really helps you with anything pertaining to your physical expression in the real world. And so with this book, what I wanted to do is I wanted to give people who could see the value of all these things right out of the gate, give them a guide that would show them how to work their way through the, uh, the necessary steps to get good at all of them at the same time. And when I say get good at all of them, I don't mean, you know, like you're going to go from not doing any push-ups to like knocking out one armors like it was your job, but rather here's how to do push-ups in a way that's going to be conducive to your goals, meaning it's going to help make your upper body stronger, protect your shoulders. Here's how to do, you know, the kettlebell swing. Uh, and build your way up to it in such a way that, you know, you're going to be able to blast some fat off your body. You're going to get much stronger legs. You're going to strengthen your grip. And so I picked out what I viewed as the most essential movements in all of those categories, kettlebells, calisthenics, and movement, and put them together into a program that people can, can do basically right out of the gate and allow them to uh, have enough variety in their training to make it exciting, to make it you know, the sort of a thing that they want to stick with, but then enough consistency in their training where they are not saying like, okay, well, I've got several days off in between. I'm not really doing anything. It gets them into the habit of daily training, even if it's for only for, as we discussed earlier, very brief periods of time. So my, my hope behind that book, and I think I, I think I was able to achieve it, was that I would be able to get people to see how to use all of these elements in a single program, do it in a way that's not going to overwhelm them and do it in a way that is going to set them up for more advanced uh, skills in the near future. And um, it was something I had had in mind to do for many years. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I mentioned earlier with the intermittent fasting, just spending months eating sugary cereal every morning, knowing this is not a great idea. Uh, I spent, you know, years thinking I should really write a book for people who are, truly want a good foundation for their kettlebell and bodyweight training and could be good for beginners, intermediates, and even advanced people looking to, to tweak their, their abilities and, uh, you know, put it out there for people to decide whether they like it or not. And uh, it was a big success. So I was very happy good. I did it. Cool. And so the other book, Tamers of the Lost Ark, uh, what's that one cover? Okay. Now this one, every time people say the name, I can't help but smile. That's my hope that whenever any, anybody hears it, they kind of, it's like a tongue in cheek sort of a dad joke, as it were. You know what? I've got them on my, on my bookshelf. I should have brought them out here to, to display them to the camera, but you can go uh, grab them if it want. You can go yeah, grab let me, them. Yeah, let me see if I can do that. Hang on. Yeah. 
fortunately they were within they were within grabbing distance so for anybody who is viewing this online this is an OBS kettlebell and bodyweight kickstart right and uh, tamers of the lost art now this one I would say is a more specialty book mm -hmm. because the kettlebell and bodyweight kickstart is really more focused on you know, getting you started with things. But uh, Tamers of the Lost Ark is for people who are already deep in the kettlebell world. So I would say at least intermediate level. And the idea behind it is to solve a problem that I've noticed. I had I'd noticed years and years ago that people have with uh, kettlebell ballistics training. So let's zoom out a little bit and look at the kettlebell in particular. With most, let's say with like barbells and dumbbells, you can do ballistic movements. Like you'll see people who are like Olympic weightlifters doing like cleans and snatches and high pulls and things like that. You don't really see most of the general populace doing these things. These are kind of more like specialty movements because to do them with a barbell, you just have to be very well put together. Uh, otherwise, you'll, you'll get jacked up pretty quickly. And similarly, you know, with, with uh, dumbbells, you can technically do stuff like snatches and, mm -hmm. and cleans and things like that. It's not as common, but it's, it's doable. And the dumbbell doesn't lend itself as well to those things, but it can be done. The kettlebell lends itself very, very well to ballistic movements. And specifically, um, you could break kettlebell exercises up into two categories. One we would call grinds, which is kind of like the traditional movements, like slow movements, like presses, squats, rows, you know, things of this nature, where the focus behind doing them is, well, basically, we'll say like, if at some point you stop applying effort in the movement, the kettlebell just doesn't go anywhere. It's not like an initial burst of uh, movement like you would see in the swing or a clean or a snatch. Uh, so that second category of movements, the ballistics, require an initial burst of momentum after which the kettlebell is going to travel through a particular path. And that path is known as the arc. And each kettlebell exercise for the, um, in the ballistic category, whether it's swing, clean, high pull, or snatch, has a very slightly different path, a slightly different arc. And in order to make the kettlebell move in that path, the hinge is basically always the same. The hinge meaning basically what your hips are doing. They kind of go back as though if you're familiar with weight training, as though you're going to do a deadlift. Mm -hmm. If you're not familiar with weight training, we might say it's like if you were going to do a long jump, you're going to jump, let's say you want to jump like 10 feet across a crevasse. Uh, you could think if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, Indiana Jones tries to jump across that, that, uh, big bottomless pit uh, right at the beginning of the movie <laughs> yeah, before um, the door slams on him yeah <laughs> exactly exactly and his very unscrupulous guide decided to steal the you know the <laughs> idol that he was there yeah exactly adios senor <laughs> yeah exactly yeah fortunately it worked out in the end spoiler right. alert he was fine right uh, so if you, ha if you haven't seen the movie you know you've had since 1981 to see it so i would i would please <laughs> rush out and just watch the movie but um the the act of of changing the arc to meet the needs of whatever kettlebell exercise it is your intention to perform is called taming the arc. And the thing that I noticed is that uh, all of the really proper kettlebell training principles that we're supposed to be doing when we're, when we're lifting weights, they just go out the window when, when it comes to taming the arc. Because one of the things we're taught in Strong First and probably in other kettlebell organizations as well is uh, something that came from Brian Oldfield, who was, if you're not familiar, he was one of the like best track and field athletes ever. I mean, this guy was like, he could throw a shot put, you know, forever, basically, and like javelin, all this stuff. He was incredibly good at it. And he said, and I'm getting this through Dan John. So Dan John was a very famous uh, 
track and field coach is also a kettlebell instructor. Right. He said, uh, you can't think your way through a ballistic movement. And I don't know if Dan paraphrased it at all, but this, he quoted, uh, Brian Oldfield with this. And the thing is, is that anything that's like, if anything that is happening that has momentum behind it, once the momentum kicks in, you're sort of at the, at the mercy of the momentum. Like just before mm -hmm. this, I saw a video somebody sent me of somebody who was on a mountain bike going down a path really fast and he missed his spot. And so he, all of a sudden he was off the trail going in the wrong direction. Well, you can't think your way through like, oh, well, how can I get back on the track? The momentum is already right. there. You're about to crash. It's not going to be pretty. Um, so it's somewhat similar with the, the kettlebell, albeit a lot less dangerous, in that you can't think your way through the ballistic movement. And so we have people do slow movements to learn the hip hinge or the proper uh, lower body position to set up. So, for instance, we would have like a deadlift, which is done slowly so that you can learn what the hips are supposed to be doing. But then the fast part of it, which is the part that's really the most important, is just left up to, you know, like, well, good luck. So, and the other part of that is that if you can't think your way through a movement, you can't really cue somebody through the movement. So if somebody is trying to do a swing and their arc doesn't look good, they have to put the bell down in order for you to give them the, the, the cue that they need to fix it. And yet most of the time people are, you know, are instructors, even very good ones are shouting instructions at their students, do this, do that, change this, do this. Well, you can't think your way through it. So what, what sense is there to give them all these cues? So. The thing that I was noticing was that there's no slow controlled element in the arc. There is for the hinge, and there are those two elements for any ballistic movement, hinge right into the arc. And there is this expectation that people think their way through the movement, even though we all acknowledge that they can't. So with Tamers of the Lost Arc, what I wanted to do is put together a series of movements that would allow people, it would be so, sort of like the deadlift is for their hinge. Uh, and it would allow people to be able to feel their way through. Because even if you can't think your way through something, you can feel your way through it. Uh, there's a great line in Enter the Dragon. I don't know if you're a, a Bruce Lee fan or not. Uh, I'm not. Um, I've never seen any of his movies. I know. I, 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 no. I forgive you. <laughs> uh, no, you know what? You can, go on, you can go on YouTube and you can look up this, this scene. There's a great scene mm -hmm. that has, I think, very great implications for strength training in general. So you didn't have to watch the whole movie, but this scene is very easy to find. Bruce Lee is teaching a student and he's trying to, you know, teach him the, the wily ways of Kung Fu and the student's not doing so well. And he tells him, don't think, feel. And mm -hmm. so that's what you want to try to do in a fight. Because again, you can't think your way through. You have to just be able to feel and interpret what your, uh, what your opponent is doing. And so the same thing applies with your kettlebell training is that if you can feel your way through a ballistic lift, it's a lot easier to learn it more quickly. So I've got a series of movements that are done with gymnastics rings that uh, emulate and sort of mimic the path that the kettlebell goes through in ballistic movements that allows you to feel your way through them so that when you then apply them to your ballistic lifts, it's a lot easier to tame the arc and to mm -hmm. do so with a much shorter learning curve. So the idea behind it, again, it's, I would say this is not a book that was, would be for beginners. I think that uh, if you're a beginner, you know, you're not going to be doing things like the cleans and high pulls and snatches and stuff like that. Right. Um, so more, I think, uh, for intermediates, once you're starting to get into that stage of your intermediate level training, then it becomes very valuable. But I've gotten uh, a lot of really great uh, testimonies from it, from people who've done it, and they you know, they're all of a sudden they were able to do snatches when they couldn't before, or they were raw beginners and they were able to learn how to do a high pull 
which right. is uh, generally a, you know, we'll say a more intermediate skill for most people, intermediate leading toward advanced. And it all had to do with the fact that they were able to feel the muscles necessary to move the weight in the path that it needed to be in. And so I called it Tamers of the Lost Ark because for so many people, it's like this really long, drawn out and needless trial and error to figure out how to do these movements. And again, most of these movements are being taught by people like us who may have an easier time picking up on these things or have spent more time doing it. We're just better in touch with our bodies. Um, And it's very difficult to impart this to some people who are very ambitious and really are go-getters as far as the movements are concerned, Mm -hmm. but they don't yet have those physical skills that allow them to translate what they want to do into what they can do. And so this book, shows them how to do that and all you need is a pair of gymnastics rings something to attach them to and a kettlebell and you're ready to go but again you should have some good kettlebell skills uh, built up to begin with in order to get the most out of it but being able to feel your way through things means that like you just said you've trialed and aired it enough times that you know what feels right versus what does not feel right and it's kind of very subjective towards stuff well that worked for me um, but the next person who tries to do it is probably not going to have the same experience that you have. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a way, because we've done this, we've kind of jumped in there. We've started doing it. We've done it again, 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 for how, however long. We've developed enough emotional and kinesthetic intelligence that uh, now we've gotten to the point now, okay, this is how it should feel. So it, it does seem like in a way there should be some, there is a, a kind of a trial and error. Um, part that should be included, but you're you're just trying you're trying to you're trying to shorten that road there for people a little bit. Is that correct? That's exactly right. You know, it reminds me of uh, I don't know if you've ever seen The Mask of Zorro, which was with uh, Antonio uh, Banderas and uh, yeah, I, I, I did many years ago in the theaters with my with my family. I did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was one, that's a yeah. movie you see like once, and then you're like, okay, you know, I've I've seen it. That, that was um, that was fun. I don't care to see it again, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark where you can watch it, you know, just endlessly. Or, yeah, right. or uh, Enter the it's Dragon, another good example. Um, but uh, but there I'll is a great out. line in there. I, I remember even watching it in theaters and I thought that's a really funny line. Uh, uh, Alejandro Murieta is uh, Antonio Banderas' character and Don Diego okay. de la Vega is Anthony Hopkins' character. Now, why they got an Englishman to play you know, Don Diego de la Vega, obviously a guy who's very much Spanish. I don't know, but Anthony Hopkins is a big, right. big box office draw. So I guess it makes sense. But he's trying to teach... He's basically trying to pass the the baton to Alejandro Murieta, Antonio Banderas, to become the new Zorro because he was the old Zorro and he's just, you know, he's in his 60s now and he's just like, you know, the swashbuckling days are over. So he wants to teach him how to, how to fight with a sword. And so Alejandro picks up the sword and he said, do you know how to use one of those things? And he said, of course, the pointy end goes in the other man. You know, it's like, well, obviously that's the goal. You know, you stab the other guy or cut him or whatever the case may be, but there's a whole art behind it. And so what happens with a lot of uh, trainers is that they've become so good at, you know, the what like going from point A to point B that they forget what the path was like to get them there. I, I mean, I, I think it was mm-hmm. um, Jack Dempsey was one of the best heavyweight fighters ever oh, yeah. back in the yeah. back in the older days. Right. He said something similar where he said a lot of really great boxers do not make great coaches because 
to that like they can't even think their way through the punch it's just so natural to them that they can't uh they can't explain here's what you have to do to make a good right cross it's just they just do it and to them point a and point b are like this they're like right next to each other for somebody else they're, it could be miles away and so this is what happens i think with a lot of trainers many of whom get into things right. because they're just they're naturally good at it they're drawn to it and they really like it but they in many cases they've never had to struggle very much or if they did it wasn't super long and knowing how to meet your student where they are to take them to where they want to go oftentimes involves taking a different path than what you were taught or that a uh, different path mm -hmm. than what you took and so that's basically what i tried to do for instance with tamers of the lost ark because nobody taught me to do this stuff that i wrote in the book i realized in uh started in like 2018 that it was sometimes it was just really hard to teach people how to do a good clean and it would take forever and it, this was something i had noticed for a very long time and i assumed well this is just the way it is but then it wasn't until maybe yeah i would say five years ago i was like well why is it like that why why is it that some people can get it very quickly and some can't and so i decided i wanted to try to figure mm -hmm. out how to do it and you know like you would do with a machine you take it apart to see how it works i did the same thing with the mechanics of of the movement itself and um started doing it with myself and with others and again it took forever but eventually i wrote a book about it so that's where we where we find ourselves today on that point uh interesting on that point about jack dempsey years ago i actually did buy one of his books that he wrote about i think it was like the art of the punch or something like mm. that um and when, when since you just now mentioned it i started looking around my books here to see if i could still find it and i don't think i i don't think it's within uh reach right now but uh, but yeah, it was an interesting, it was an interesting book uh, the way he did. I do remember he did the way he broke down certain fights and, or certain movements and, um, actually got into the physics of, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I can't authenticate any of this of how actually true to, you know, physics, a lot of this actually was, or if this is just like uh conjecture, but, um, it was at least a very noble attempt to try to break down something and try to make it a little bit academic versus, you know, just kind of like putting gloves on somebody and say, here, punch this bag. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll tell you how well you did. Um, yeah. yeah, that, 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 that's a hard thing to do because you really have to do step out of outside of yourself and think, yeah, well, if I didn't have a clue about any of this stuff, where would I start? And you know, yeah, maybe it's, I, Sometimes it's just hard to really put yourself there. Sometimes you have to have someone, you know, stand there and tell you, well, no, explain that to me. Explain that to me. Don't take anything for granted. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and it's very hard. So kudos to you for doing it not once, but twice. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's funny you should say this too, because uh, first of all, I think the martial arts example or the, the boxing example, that's one I think people can kind of connect with very quickly because they're like, you know, you everybody's seen at this point, you know, like a uh, street fight online between people who are completely untrained and it's just these wild looping punches. And you realize like, oh, this is actually not as, as easy as it would seem because you see you see the movies and you're like, OK, the good guy can always fight really well. And, you know, maybe he takes a couple of licks, but he always wins. So it's got to be like that in the real world. But it's like, no, there is a lot more to it. Not only is there the technique, but there's strategy and all this other stuff. And uh, in a very real sense, it's very much the same with lifting weights. My friend Fabio Zonin, who's a master kettlebell instructor under Pavel, um, he uh, he talked about, I had him 
uh, I had a conversation with him some time back about like how he got started with powerlifting and he's in his, in his fifties now. And he said, you know, in Italy back in, you know, when he was a teenager, he was, uh, he asked the guy who introduced him to powerlifting, like, okay, well with the squat, what are, what are my knees supposed to do? And the guy was just like, you put the barbell on your back and you squat down and you stand back up. He's like, yeah, but what about like my back? What or what are my shoulders yeah. supposed to like every question he asked, it was the same thing. It was like you, you put the bar on your back, you you sit down and you stand back up. So it's mm-hmm. like the nuance was left out of it. And of course, his point behind that was he racked up quite a few injuries because those nuances are actually important. And right. it's easy to overlook it if you're already really good at it because you just think, well, how many different ways can you possibly sit down? Like I just do it the same way every time. Certainly everybody else is gonna do it like that. But mm-hmm. Being a trainer, you have to you have to be able to kind of foresee what people are potentially going to do wrong or what they commonly do wrong and provide them some ideally provide them some guidance so that they avoid it to begin with. And uh, much the same way as Jack Dempsey found that a lot of boxers couldn't actually teach how to box, you know, learning how to break it down not only makes you a better instructor, but in most cases, it makes you better at whatever it is that you're doing because you get right. a deeper understanding along the way. Right. So. It- when did you start actually, just as more personal, when did you start actually getting into uh, training abroad? Because I think that's really cool. Like you've been all all around Europe training and stuff. You've got obviously clients there and classes mm-hmm. you've taught abroad. And, you know, you made note in your description, you're a foreign language geek. So, you know, you, I think you're, uh, you're a guy that likes to, guy that likes to stay mobile. That's what it sounds like. Or you like to be very cultured. Um, so when did you start getting into that? Well, um, you know, for me, I got somewhat fortunate in that uh, I was just well situated for it. I, there were a couple, uh, I think a couple of elements to it. So first things first is that in 2013, I moved to Israel and I lived okay. there until yeah. the end of 2017. And obviously, you know, Israel, it's in the Middle East, but it's only a few hours flight to a lot of places in Europe. So um, I would, I think, for instance, trying to think of okay so i remember in particular the first time uh i did any sort of teaching abroad first of all it was volunteer work i was basically like uh it was i mentioned fabio earlier he and another one of my colleagues mark rifkin were going to be teaching the first ever uh strong first kettlebell certification in croatia and uh i was like i was super poor i had like no money but i had a credit card and i was like hey Mark, Fabio, do you mind if I come and like assist at, at the workshop in, in Croatia? And they were like, yeah, sure, come on. And so uh, put it on the credit card, you know, went to went to Zagreb, got picked up at the airport and uh, ended up uh, assisting at this three-day event, had a ton of fun. And uh, when I was there, Fabio invited me to attend the uh, SFG Level 2 the following summer. So it was going to be in June of 2014. So I started training for that. And um, along the way too, what I was doing a lot of at the time, which I think was maybe more effective then than it would be now, but still still worth doing, was I, every day I had like a new post I was putting out on my professional page on Facebook, which I had opened up a few years uh, previously, and I would you know put my musings and my insights and thoughts about training on Facebook, and so I you know, started getting a bit of a following. It's a lot harder to do now. The, the algorithm and this and that it just doesn't make it as easy as it as it once was but um but that uh and my i previously i had had a blog so you know and i had i would uh, was a regular contributor to certain like facebook uh groups of 
you know, like, let's say strong first kettlebell instructors and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, people like, there were some people who knew me. It wasn't, I'm not like Pavel level famous by any stretch of the imagination, but I had uh, gotten enough of a reputation as somebody who, as we had talked about is, uh, got good at synthesizing number one, how to, how to do a couple of different, uh, mo uh, complementary modalities at the same time and, and get even better results. But I, uh, even before that, I had started to build up a reputation uh, for my, my knowledge of body weight training, because I think a lot of people in the kettlebell world were, uh, very curious and very interested in body weight training. And so they just wanted to know, okay, well, how do you, how do you actually do all of these things? Because mm -hmm. like, you know, back lever and one arm push up and pistol squats and leg raises, all this stuff is super cool. But it's, it's not like, let's say a barbell where you start off, maybe a plate on each side, you do some deadlifts, you build up to five by five, whatever it may be. And then you add some more weight and that's very straightforward. And I think it's easier to see like the linear progression where you just, just add weight. But with body weight training in particular, it was uh, very different because in many cases, adding weight is something that you'll probably never do like with one arm pushups. But you, if you can't do a one arm pushup on the ground, there has to be a way that you can build up to it. So how do you do it? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got very good. I got very interested in body weight training in 2011, like it kind of advanced stuff like, you know, one arm pushups and the like. And um, I wrote about it a lot. I wrote guest articles and, you know, did videos and stuff like that. So I started getting requests. So this is really the answer to your question. As I started getting requests from people to come and teach this material because they were interested in learning, you know, what I had learned along the way. So I think the first time, in addition to uh, assisting at workshops or, you know, co-instructing at workshops where I was just not really getting paid, it was just kind of for the, you know, the love of what I was doing. Like I went to Prague in 2014 uh, to teach or to co-instruct with some other instructors, the first ever original strength workshop there. Um, and then the following year, my friend, uh, Pavel, who owns a series of gyms in, uh, not Pavel Tsetsulin, uh, Pavel Matsek in Prague. He and his wife own a, a chain of gyms in, uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia. And so he said, would you like to come and teach about like some of this gymnastics, like straight arm strength training? Cause I think people here would be very interested. So I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. He's like, okay, yeah. so write up a description and, you know, let me know what's going to be contained. And, uh, I will do it. And so we set up, uh, uh, you know, like what the workshop here is, what we're going to cover and sold out in like a few hours. So he's like, do you want to do another one like the day after? So that will, you know, we've got a lot of people who are obviously very interested. So I said, sure, let's do it. So um, that I think was the first time that it was definitely the first time I got paid to teach abroad. And um, then from there, other offers started coming in. And again, because I was much closer, I think, you know, some of my expenses were lower, so it wasn't as scary to bring me. It's not to say that that was the only only consideration, but it's very different flying from, let's say, from Israel to Italy or Croatia or Czech Republic or, or whatever it may be, as opposed to America, where it's like a huge ordeal, you know, like you can, it's like maybe a three to four hour flight, you know, from Israel in most cases, and you can take a budget airline and it's like a couple hundred bucks, if even that, you know. So. Um, so a lower barrier for entry, but also I had done the groundwork or the legwork uh, ahead of time. And I'd also differentiated myself uh, amongst my colleagues because I had, uh, uh, I had knowledge in a variety of categories of things that they saw were useful and were very interesting. And so they wanted to, uh, those who owned gyms wanted to, wanted to bring me so that I could teach them. And uh, yeah, and I just, every time somebody made an offer, I just said yes. 
and uh, it was a lot younger, so it was easier to, to do that yeah. as well. Um, and uh, I think the coolest one that I got was to go to Australia. So I went yeah, I saw to, that too. That was a lot of fun. I've, I've been there a couple times. I'm uh, planning on going next year as well. The guy who brought me the first two times said, I, I think we need to have you back to teach another workshop. So, of course, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, but I was, I was asked to go out there to teach uh, on bodyweight training in 2015. And uh, I, it was amazing. Like Australia in particular is super cool because it's like America's like more laid back cousin, I would mm -hmm. say. You know? Yeah. Uh, it, it was just, I had a ton of fun. I, uh, and of course, I got to teach a lot of people some great things. And um, so, I, yeah, I was very, very fortunate. But that was, that was sort of the progression. It was that I, I kind of put myself out there on the mm -hmm. channels that other people were on. And uh, I had a unique approach that I thought people would like. The people who did like them were, were willing to reach out to me and, and see if I would, I would come and teach them. I was ready, willing, and able. I did it and uh, just continued to build from there. So key takeaways from this is have a passion, uh, grab opportunities as they come, and find your own voice. Exactly. And That's I would I add one it. other thing. If I, were, if I had to add anything, I would say, yes, definitely grab opportunities. But then um, you also have to create them. Because in some sense, I got very fortunate mm -hmm. that people actually cared. You know, it was a kind of right, right place, right time, right circumstances. Uh, and now one of the things that I really strive to do is not wait for the opportunities to come to me, but rather mm. to try to create them. And this podcast is a great example because I reached out to you, I think, and right. uh, or we were matched uh, together. This was like, uh, not I quite I, like I think you know, I messaged you. I think I messaged you first. Right. You might be yeah. right. So actually, yeah. so this wouldn't be a good example because in this case, the, op the great opportunity <laughs> did come to me. Um, but uh, but similarly, you know, I try to I try to create these circumstances to the best of my ability because. I think that uh, if you wait, they may come, they may not. If you, mm -hmm. if you go out there, they also may come to fruition, they may not. But there are going to be things that may never have come to fruition without your reaching out. So, right. um, yes, but I would say the key out of all those things, because everything you said is 100% correct. And I would say the really big key, too, is you've got to, I think you really have to lean into whatever your personality is. Like, I like talking to people. I'm kind mm. of like a mix of an introvert and an extrovert. Like I work by myself alone and I'm, you know, alone most of the day, I, you know, as I work, but I also love being around people. I love right. chatting with people. I love talking about topics that I'm passionate about. And um, there are other people who are more introverted and, you know, like, let's say a podcast may, they may not really like the option as well, but they might be better with writing an article or maybe doing a solo podcast or something like that. You have to lean into whoever you are naturally. I do think that you have to work to kind of polish. doesn't mean take away your rough edges, but let's say like, I would say accentuate your rough edges. You know, like if you're an introvert, don't, you don't have to necessarily change that. If you're an extrovert, you don't have to change that either. Uh, you may have to do things you don't necessarily uh, in, enjoy doing initially, but I think the really big thing is that um, you have to try to, uh, let's say, become the best version of yourself as hackneyed as that sounds if one of your goals is to make this you know big splash in whatever your industry may be i think that's a very important thing to do and um and lean into the stuff that you're good at i i think i'm reasonably good on camera you know um but i'm not I would agree. Say, like 
I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily yet like Sam Sulik. I know that guy's huge now. Everybody loves him. He's doing all these YouTube videos and stuff like that. Uh, I, I like writing, so I'm, I'm good with that. Um, but I know people and I follow people who are not good on camera, but they're excellent at writing. Even if the writing itself isn't, let's say, Pulitzer worthy, it's right. engaging. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly with, you know, podcasts, there are people who they may not be great, uh, like on, on camera, but they're great with a podcast, you know, or they're right. great in, in audio format. So I think you have to kind of lean into stuff like that and then find out whatever is unique that you can add to the, uh, to whatever field it is that you're, you're interested in. Like, I don't do anything with barbell training. I think it's great. I really enjoy it, but I, it's just not the sort of a thing that I feel like I can add anything to per se. Um, whereas I think my unique approach with kettlebells, calisthenics and movement is something that I can talk at great length about. It's something I'm very passionate about. And, uh, so I want to make sure that I add that so that for, you know, anybody who's listening, who mm-hmm. wants to do something similar or, you know, wants to make an impact in whatever their industry may be, uh, those things are very, very helpful and be willing to suck big time at a lot yeah, of stuff yeah. for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, cause I still suck at a lot of the things that I do, but it doesn't <laughs> stop me from doing so. You know, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned that because I'm thinking like you talked about, you know, how someone can be very good at some things and even be mondo successful. Um, I'm thinking like somebody like Sir Richard Branson, um, somebody who is exceedingly successful and exceedingly rich. We all know that. I mean, this guy is a serial entrepreneur, you know, giant in every sense of the word. I saw him on a podcast, this podcast I follow called Diary of a CEO. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, I saw him on the podcast and I was kind of struck just how not good at speaking he really was. Um, I mean, not that he was horrible. It's not that I couldn't understand him or anything like that, but he just seemed very like, like a fish out of water, almost like, and he was asked, being asked these questions about his childhood, about how he grew up, how he started his businesses, uh, his philosophy towards business. And he's just kind of, he seemed very uncomfortable, you know, not that he, not, I'm sure he wanted to be there. He's Richard Branson. If he wants to be there, he'll be there. Uh, He could have just said no, but you know, I was just kind of struck as like um, how he almost like was kind of like almost frozen sometimes and trying to figure, collect his thoughts and answer these questions. And that was just, that was kind of eye opening to me too. It's like, wow, this guy is more successful than any 10 or 20 people you're ever going to meet. And he really does not seem to like being interviewed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because people, I I saw on that exact same note, I saw this was a couple of years ago. I think it was a Jeff Bezos went into space and then he's being interviewed on CNN or something like that after like, what was it like? And he's like, incredible. And he gave this like really awkward laugh. It was just like, I was like, I felt laugh. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, the funny thing is like you watched him try to interact with the CNN reporter and it's like, it's not that he doesn't have any social skills, but they're like probably not as good as most people's social skills will say. And it's like, well, okay, but clearly that wasn't a necessity for the business that he built because right. there are different skills necessary for him to become, you know, second richest man in, in the world right now. And uh, yeah, he just leaned into the stuff that he was exceptionally good at and, uh, and he took it from there. But it's funny that you mentioned that because that's so true. Elon Musk, I think, is another good example. Mm, I think yeah. he's, in, he's endearing <laughs> because he's like a goofball, but he's, he's weird. You know, like you don't get to be the richest man in history by being a normal everyday guy who, you know, just 
wakes up, you know, at, at 6 a.m. and goes to work. You, you ha- kind of have to be weird if you want to be exceptional, because yeah. if you weren't, you wouldn't be exceptional. Right. It's uh, actually right now I'm listening to the audio book of the book that was just written on Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. And mm. uh, yeah, Elon is wired differently. I mean, first of all, I don't want to get too far off subject here, but he's very traumatized. He's a very oh, traumatized yeah. man. He had a, a psychopathic father that did a yeah. number on him and that contributes a lot to who he is. Now, you know, that, that, that kind of trauma that can go either way. It can make you into Elon Musk, the richest guy that, on the planet, or it can make you into a drug addict, you know, who is, who is dead before he's even 30 from overdosing. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. can, it can swing one way or the other. Um, and I've had conversations with other guests about this is about, you know, cause I've had people and said, yeah, you know, to be really successful, that trauma seems to be almost like a, a requirement um, because there has to be something inside you that really just pushes you forward really, or drags you forward at the very least that fuels yeah. you uh, when, especially when things are not going well. Uh, but, you know, any normal person would say, you know what, I got so many good things going for me. I don't need to deal with this crap. So yeah. screw it. It's well, yeah. You know what? It's interesting because they there's a saying, um, "Great pain makes great art." Mm. You know, you think about uh, so many musicians have had hit songs written about something that something really bad that happened to them. I, like uh, one that I remember from my childhood was "Don't Speak" by No Doubt. Gwen Stefani wrote that right. because of her breakup mm-hmm. with their bass player. Right. Um, they were dating, I guess, for a number of years, and then they had to still tour together in a band that had to have been extremely difficult um and uh yeah. i think uh, eric clapton uh, tears in heaven his oh, son yeah. fell oh, out yeah. a window yeah his young son you know yeah, like he's like five toddler. years old yeah yeah like just super super sad and uh you know i think one of the really good operative ideas behind this and this and this is something anybody can use even if you don't have trauma which would be great for most people because yeah, nobody wants to be traumatized and again, it's a real crapshoot. Do you either become super rich and all this other stuff, or do you become, in most cases, somebody who's very, very ill-adjusted and, and has a hard time, you know, comporting himself and uh, throughout life? But uh, Matt Fury, who's the author of uh, Combat Conditioning, which was, I mean, he's really kind of the reason people are doing calisthenics seriously now, because mm-hmm. he wrote this book back in the late 90s, and it was just super, super popular. So he was kind of the guy who kickstarted the calisthenics craze. He was a Division one wrestler. I think he was the top in the U.S. in his weight class in the 80s, and he went and became a kung fu champion in China in the 90s. Um, just very, very well accomplished dude. Uh, incredible marketer. But he said something once. Um, he said, uh, "Make it uh, like whatever, whatever bad thing happens to you, like make it perfect. Like how is this perfect for what I'm trying to accomplish? You know, like if you have somebody who's got, let's say." got uh, uh, a scar on his face from a car accident. You know, how can you make that perfect? How can you make that the sort of a thing that it's bad that it happened, but you can make good come from it. And I think mm-hmm. that the key that people can bring away from these, uh, this sort of a thing is that I think it's extreme, extremely important in fitness too, because most of the people that I train, well, actually all of them, everybody I, I consult with or coach or anything like that, I make them fill out a, uh, a, sheet that gives me kind of their background like which includes injuries and things like that 
And, you know, I want to know the injuries because very often that's going to restrict what they can do, but it's not going to restrict them from training. So what it allows me to do is find a unique path for them that allows them to go from, you know, uh, not being able to be uh, regularly uh, exercising to be able exercising every single day in a way that is not going to negatively uh, impact mm -hmm. their health and their strength. And I want to try to find a way to make that perfect so that way they can they can still get strong. And you know what? In very, in, in very many cases, you can work around it enough that eventually you can work through it. And whatever you couldn't do before, depending on the circumstances, quite often uh, you can overcome that. But you have to go through whatever you, your own unique path is to get there. And uh, some people take childhood trauma and they turn it into something incredible like you know Elon Musk. Some people uh, turn it into uh, even greater tragedies, you know, like throwing the rest of their life away. I've known more people who have done the latter than who have done the former, but there's For always sure. a path. Uh, there's always a path forward. And I think if you can see that happen on an extreme level, like what we can see with Musk and like what we can see with other people who have endured really, really terrible stuff, then it's easier to, let's say, microtize it so that you can see your own situation. Number one is maybe not being as bad as you thought. And number two, seeing that there's an opportunity for you to, to uh, move forward move ahead and uh, and accomplish something great and the sooner the sooner that people figure that out the sooner they can start seeing some pretty mad gains so speaking of accomplishing something great what's next on your radar you've authored two books you travel internationally you train internationally you're pretty successful already so what's next what is next is I want to continue to grow my audience and mm -hmm. uh, well, on a professional level, let's say that's the, that's the idea is I want to continue to grow my audience, bring more people into my sphere. And uh, I want to be able to positively impact more people who are like those that I've been training for the last 13 years, which is people who are busy professionals who have a great ambition to accomplish something so, uh, with their own training not just for themselves, but also for their families. You know, they mm -hmm. want to, they want to be present for their, their kids growing up. They want to be physically active. They want to be able to take their kids and, and families on great adventures and, and do cool things and basically be, you know, the mom or the dad that they wish that they had had. And so I want to be, right. let's say on more podcasts, on TV, radio. These are, in my opinion, it's just uh, a way for me to bring in more people who can, who, are good for my message. Not everybody resonates with what I do, and that's great because there's going to be somebody else that's going to be able to help them. But for the people who are busy professionals, who are business owners or, you know, work in a professional capacity for another business and have minimal time but maximal ambitions, I want to be able to to help them. And a big part of that is going to be taking the platforms that I've used so far, you know, like social media, uh, I've got my, my email list, uh, you know, podcasts, things like that, and start to grow that you know, by, re by reaching far beyond where I've gone before. So on a professional level, that is my goal. Uh, on a personal level, you know, well, that stuff is maybe not as interesting. People are like, you know, what can you do for me? That's really more, more interesting thing. But uh, I'd like to uh, eventually settle down, start a family of my own, which I think is going to... Obviously, for me, it'll, on a personal level, it'll be very fulfilling, but will also give me greater insight into how I can help people who are in similar circumstances. So, uh, so on the one hand, you know, whatever you did to be successful in your own circumstances is somewhat of like an N equals one experiment. But a lot of times, too, it'll give you deeper insight into how to help others if you know how to how to direct it properly. So, um, 
that is, I would say, uh, on the whole, that is what I'm after. And, uh, you know, I maybe add a couple of other foreign languages to the list of, uh, to the <laughs> list of good. things to speak. So Sounds that good. would be fun. Well, Alex, we have a, uh, closing tradition on this podcast where the guest gives the final word to the audience. Mm. All right. So if you can leave people with one thing to remember and only one thing, what would you say it would be? Find an excuse to succeed because we've all got excuses to fail. Uh, one thing I don't like about the fitness industry is you see these, you know, like motivational posters, like here's somebody in a wheelchair who summited Everest. What's your excuse? Well, your excuses are all very valid because you've got a sick parent you have to deal with. You've got mm -hmm. kids you got to shuttle between practice and school and all these other things. You've got a spouse who wants time and attention from you. So you have great excuses. There's, there's no reason you have to summit Everest. You shouldn't feel bad that somebody else has done it, but you've got a lot of excuses to fail and they're all very good ones. But what's your excuse to succeed and how are you going to make that path work for you so that you can take this imperfect situation that you find yourself in and make it perfect. So that would be my closing remark is that I think um, if you can find an excuse to succeed, no matter what, you will get a lot farther than if you were only listening to your very valid and very good excuses to fail. I like that. I like the fact that you don't shame people for living perfectly normal lives. Yeah, I mean, and you're right. We do see that a lot, especially on social media. And, you know, I've come down pretty hard on social media on this podcast many times. Um, I use social media, so it has a utility. Sure. Um, but there, yeah, you're right. And yeah, you're just right. I'll just leave it at that. So I like that. I, I like that. I like that kind of uh, that flip of the word excuse in a more positive direction. That's very Bingo. good. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for talking to me. It's been great, man. The pleasure has been all mine. I, uh, I hope that all of your dear listeners have gotten some good nuggets of information and sure. some good actionable advice. And uh, I, uh, I bid them all an excellent rest of their day and uh, go forth and crush weakness. Yeah, exactly. All right, Alex Sulkin, the Hebrew hammer, trainer, author, um, traveler extraordinaire, expert in kettlebell and calisthenics. Two books he's got out, uh, the Nobe ES Kettlebell and Bodyweight Kickstart, Tamers of the Lost Ark. I, um, oh, where can you find those? Are they all on Amazon? Can they get those on Amazon? Yep, those are on Amazon. And okay. what I would say is that, you know, uh, one of the things we mentioned earlier, too, is that sometimes even the idea of sitting down to read a book, even if it's, you know, not a super huge one, uh, Kindle or, or physical, right. can seem like a bit of a daunting task. So for people who want to get, Number one, you can go to Amazon and you can find either of those books. But if you want to get kind of like a taste of what I what I do, uh, you know, Sean and I were talking about this earlier, my nine minute kettlebell and bodyweight challenge. Right. It's free. You can go, you know, get a copy. Uh, if you go to nine minute challenge dot com and uh, from there, you can kind of get an insight into what I do. Uh, very quick and simple to implement and it will give you a nice insight. So if you do decide that you wanted to get the books, you'll have a better idea of like what my style is. And uh, they're entertaining reads. It's not like dry, you know, like a textbook sort of reading. It's it's right. meant to be fast paced and fun. So, right. So I'll put I'll put all of it there. I'll put the website in there. I'll put Amazon links to the books. Uh, should you decide you want to uh, grab a copy of them, but until then, everyone, thank you for chiming in. I hope to see you next time. Quote unquote. See you next time. Until then. 
Thanks so much for time for coming on. Peace out.